Listening Dog Media. DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. But when you're young and you're listening to people, it sounds like another world. So when I realised that this was a job that you could do, I became fixated on that then. I want to be a DJ. How do you DJ? And he said to learn to count to four. The instinct part is really, really important. These people who turn up at gigs and you, you hear them playing the same set, I think they should be arrested and led away. The podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, a DJ with an MBE. Um, reactionary DJ. However the crowd reacts... I'll give them more of what they like. The DJ responsible for Rare Groove. Yeah, that's I coined that phrase. And the DJ behind the famous Good Times sound system. Norman J, MBE. Welcome to How to DJ. Great to be on. <laughs> <laughs> of course you came on your scooter, Norman. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, doing my bit for the environment, I came on the electric scooter. Not the scooters that you see all the kids riding around on. This is uh, not a very good version of a uh, vintage um, Vespa. GS160, um, for those who know. It's okay, but it just got me here 10 minutes late. <laughs> That's but, okay. You're no one <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up in Acton, West London, but I was born in Ludbrook Grove. And all my family, you know, first generation Windrush um, people, uh, lived in that square mile around Portobello. Um, and I left there when we were very young because in those days it was a proper post-war slum. Bombed out buildings, um, you know, dumped cars, etc. It, it was a place where, the, you know, and the postcode was a place where angels feared to tread. Even the postman didn't like going there. And hence, um, in 1958, it was a scene of... Uh, the UK's official first race riot happened there, and the carnival came out of that. Um, so my parents decided couldn't stay there in in that part, particular part of London, because they weren't wanted. Hence the cliche: no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. That was so true. Um, but. Extended members of my family still resided there. Even my my great uncle, who'd just gone back to the Caribbean last year, you know, he lived just around the corner from where that terrible fire, Grenfell. You know, my dad's domino club was in the basement of Grenfell. Um, so I have a lot of strong emotional ties with with, with the area, and. It wasn't lost on me, the fact that I found uh, myself, my salvation, everything that I now am. The inspiration to do that came from the fact that I had my greatest ever moments in Clubland and partying at Notting Hill Carnival. You know, setting up and playing and becoming successful less than a mile from where I was born. It's a fantastic vibe. Were your teenage years spent in Notting Hill? My teenage years were not spent in Notting Hill. Um, uh, probably in Acton and Ealing, and my teenage, later teenage years were spent in Soho. In nightclubs? It, yeah, in, in just the nightlife, the daylife, the everything. You know, if you wanted a bit of action, um, it's a great place to come and meet creative types. You know, subcultures always begin in the nether regions of, <laughs> of the city. What music were you into then? <laughs> Always black music, consistently into black music from day one. Um, and I'm talking 1960, 61. As soon as I was old, I was old enough to listen to music. But I had a wide appreciation of pop music um, and all types of music, thanks to my, my dad mainly. My dad had a very eclectic taste of his master's voice, um, 10-inch slates, 78s, um, from Tijuana Brass, um, 
early um, Jamaican blues, um, American blues, rhythm, uh, jazz, soul, everything. And I grew up in an environment like that. So it's going to, always going to leave an indelible mark on me. Do you remember your first record of your Yeah, own? that question's been asked millions of, of times. Course, yes. But it's a weird one because I didn't buy one single record. I didn't sort of hear a record and think, I'm going to go out with a pocket money and buy that. Tr- tradition in our household was that every Christmas, my dad would go out and buy all the Christmas records. Then one year in 1966 or 1967, he gave me a pound note. In those days, a pound note, I'd never even seen one. They were always as big as a book. <laughs> Go and buy the tunes for Christmas. Oh, wow. So I get on the bus, two buses from Acton, the 207 to Shepherd's Bush Market, and I get off at Shepherd's Bush Market station, go into Webster's and felt too intimidated to go to the counter to ask for records because all the it was a teenage hangout then. All rude boys, loads of skinheads were hanging out there. So I spent all day there listening, hearing everything that was coming in, watching the guys come in with the new boxes of releases, and I was standing there. And right near the end, when he closed at 7 o'clock, about 10 to 7, when it, everyone had gone, I went, can I have this, can I have this? And I have this. I bought about ten records that day. One of them was Johnny Nash, You Got Soul. Another one was it's nearly old reggae. Uh, I bought a Marvin Gaye Motown tune. I can't remember a Four Tops tune. But bought all the records, essentially, you know, black records. Got them. I'm thinking, well, my dad's not going to like this. He's going to go mad. My mum and dad embraced it. They loved it, and. That's how it began. So I couldn't, like I did it too earlier, I didn't buy one single record. No. I bought about a dozen. Six shillings and sixpence. <laughs> the question might have been asked a million times, but that yeah. is the best answer to what's your first record. Yeah. Do you think that was the start of something then for you? Yeah, because prior to that, um, my dad came home with a... Uh, uh, a record player. Well, it wasn't a record. It was a radiogram. Um, most Caribbean people who, who come over in the, in the 60s, particularly Jamaicans, are associated with the Blue Spot or Blau Punks um, record player. But my dad always had taste and said, nah, that thing's on spindly legs. I can't do anything. And I remember he went on our local high street. It wasn't a radio rentals, but it was a place that sold radiograms, te- televisions and, and stuff. Nobody could afford those things in those days. And then the story goes, my dad told me, he went in in the afternoon, he looked around, showed interest in this bush thing, which was just like one of the first stereos, proper stereos, you know, bass and treble, pick up the world service. And my dad showed an interest in it, and the guy asked him, the salesman asked him his name, his address, are you a householder? And that time my dad had just moved to Acton. And as soon as my dad said yes, he could, did the family shopping. He got home two hours later and the radiogram had already been delivered and fitted by men in brown coats. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it was my dad's pride and joy. We, we weren't allowed as kids anywhere near it. But I always used to pick up the records and go and play. <laughs> yeah. And bless my dad, he's still alive now, 90. He always encouraged me. He oh. never discouraged me from playing the records. That's uh, yeah. what you've always done. Yeah. But it's funny. I never set out to be a, a DJ. I never thought I'd have a career in music. You know, uh, when we were young, my dad bought a second-hand piano to encourage us to... I never went anywhere near the piano. My sisters learned to play. Uh, but I wanted to put, you know, the records on the stack, and you know, like a jukebox, and watch them drop one at a time. So that led to my first, I 
guess you could call it a gig. My my cousin, my older sister, my older cousin Anne, she had a birthday party. I think she, she would have been 11 or 12 then, and I would have been about eight or nine. And Anne said to me, you've got loads of records, because then I started to buy records. I said, you do the music, you play the records. I'm like, no, I want to come to the party. No, you do the, the music or you can't come to the party. So I did the music. <laughs> A-sides, B-sides, back again A-sides, <laughs> back again B-sides. Where was it? Um, it was in Acton, in, in West London, when we were we were living there. So is that your first ever DJ gig? Yeah, that I can remember. Yeah. What about your first paid DJ gig? Boy, that's hard to remember. Um, oh, that's hard to remember because it's such a, a blurring thing because being in a sound system, coming from a sound system culture, um, you know, one didn't get paid. It was for the, for the love, for the collective, for the group. And it taught you a lot about sort of teamwork and getting on with, with, with people, you know. And for a lot of us, actually being part of a, a sound system kept you out of trouble, you know, um, which was really important, you know, for, for any black DJ of any note, particularly of my generation, if you speak to them, they'll tell you exactly the, the, the same thing, you know, whether it's Jazzy B from Soul to Soul, Don Letts, Trevor Nelson, the late Paul Trouble Anderson, that's our roots, that's our lineage. We all came from the sound system because the culture that prevailed at the time, the racist, overtly racist culture at the time was, you know, no blacks allowed in the clubs. We don't want you in our clubs. Um, we'll take your soundtrack, but we don't want you in the club. And we certainly don't want you playing the records as, as a DJ. So what was your first sound system? How did it well, establish? My first and only sound system is the one yeah. that we have now, Good Times. Good times. It, it started, my brother built the sound system from the winter of 1974. Tell me about that. Uh, well, I wasn't too in, involved in that because at that time, you know, Joey and I were chalk and cheese. I'm an out-and-out soul boy. <laughs> You know, dancing monkey, clothes horse, you know, fashion, music, girls, football. And my brother was turned raster. He turned raster a couple of years ago. That culture, I wasn't into it, really. I appreciate it because my brother was in it and everyone around me was in it. But, you know, yeah, I went to reggae sound clashes, but not that didn't give me the same excitement as going to a nightclub you know, and practicing the new dance moves that's come out on the new records, you know, doing the wicky-wacky, doing the double bump, doing the hustle, you know. Two different worlds. So Joey built the sound system. There was about five or six of us who were official sound men. And I'd come as, like, family support. Do you remember the whole lineup? There was Joey, uh, MC, Briggy D, Percy P. He was, like... Our muscle man. Yes. Uh, I was a selector because I bought the records. Young DJ Rudy Ranks joined us a few years later, but you know he was one of the earliest hip hop DJs. I can can say that from 1981, 82. He's of that generation, and we provided the turntables for him to mix to learn to mix and scratch. You'd be one of the very first UK hip hop DJs then. He's unknown. He's just a street kid. He still plays out now on the sort of reggae scene, crossover scene, because that's where he comes from. But, you know, as soon as I went to a house party or a christening or something, Rudy was playing. And, and I'm hearing some of my old funk records being pulled back. And I'm like, whoa, he needs to be in the sound, Joey. You know, as another, because we were, we were just entertainers, you know, bring Rudy in. He would have been about 14, 15 then. So that was the collective. But I still wasn't officially part of it because the music wasn't my thing. You know, I got into the whole original Scar, Blue Beat thing from when I was little. By the time the, the late 60s came, you know, I'm going to secondary school and I'm discovering what they now call Northern Soul. You know, Motown, Stax, Funk, 
loved all of that. The whole Philly thing. The sound of Philadelphia was me. That was my youth club soundtrack. Music with strings, and love, relationships, and feel good, you know. And that's all coming off the back, you know, of the the race riots in America, 68, 69. I remember them well. Oh, the ones that we were allowed, the bits of film we were allowed to see. As we know, the BBC and ITV and the UK government then, you know, were in cahoots to make sure that Britain's black population weren't influenced by that, therefore creating a copycat situation. I, I know that to be a fact because 10 years later, when I finally made it to America in the end of 79, I'm going into ghetto record shops and seeing things I'd not seen before, thinking, wow. Um, and I bought up my whole library of the King speech records, all these things, of, you know, black civil rights records, poetry, jazz, were banned, couldn't get them here. And I walk into shops there in the summer of 79, and I'm finding all this stuff and going, whoa. So of course, bought everything that I could afford, took it all back. And I'm thinking, here's my old history. Here's my whole history right here, you know, on vinyl. So, yeah, I still have all my library records <laughs> there. Um, but it was a great time to be in, in New York. I was very fortunate, you know. How come you went? It was a mecca to me. It was somewhere I always wanted to go to, to New York, and I wanted to go to Philadelphia, you know, because I was into all of that music when it was new sort of proto-disco before it was disco <laughs> loved all of that you know I was a wannabe one-time dancer <laughs> <laughs> could shake a leg a, a little bit um, and was it was into it all um, but the main thing was because it was cheap you know I can still remember the exchange rate in June 6 June 1979 dollar against the pound it was two dollars 68 cents Jeez. To the pound. Yeah. That's a and lot of records. A lot of records. <laughs> but um, it was quite painful the way I found out because I remember going on a, like a supermarket sweep at the, at the local um, record shop, um, pushing a trolley along, going, yeah, this, 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 doing the maths in my head. It's roughly two for one. And I get there, and the guys are looking at me. You know, all the black guys looking at me. Who is this, who is this dude? He, he's not from around here. And then they hit me with the city tax. <laughs> so I had to go back down the aisles and put back most of the albums. <laughs> Just one of many great stories when I was in New York. But um, yeah. yeah, I stayed there for four, four months. Because basically, at that time, my father wanted to moved there he wanted to emigrate there because the rest of his family were there and my mum was adamant no we're not not going there because of school our friends you know our roots are here and so it was decided or oh, I want to go so thanks to Mr. Freddie Laker got a 99 quid one way to New York and I went, and then when I landed there, my uncle Leo met me. Uh, I was like, wow, New York, just like I pictured it. Skyscrapers and everything. That comes out of Stevie Wonder's Living for the City. And in that moment, I completely understood. Uh, even though I was into Stevie, I understood, but I just kept reciting that in my head. It's like, wow. <laughs> It was a blindingly hot day. I remember they were having a heat wave there. And the sight, it was a real sensory overload for me that first week I was there. 24-hour city. How old were you? 21, 22. So did so, you know what you wanted to do by that time? Yeah, I was old enough, but I was unemployed. I had no job, yeah, right. no future. As my punk mates said, you know, 
But I'm glad I was of that age because I was able to understand what was happening around me. Sure. You know, to disseminate it and take it all in. And and know something unbelievable is being created here. What did you come back to then? I came back to Wigan Casino, Northern Seoul, pubs closing, can't close, can't go to a party after two o'clock. You know, arcane Victorian British licensing laws and a culture based around drink. Because if there were no pubs, there would be no discos. Because when you've had a drink or whatever substance you, you like, you want to get up and have a dance. Uh, and I discovered that the club culture was completely different between the two cities and understood the differences and why there were differences. Why there were differences. Because I can remember, I never actually went into Studio 54, but a couple of times I stood outside with, with, with friends as we were going past going somewhere else. And that was the first time I, I saw, you know, a door picker in action and ropes. Yeah. You know, you're beautiful. You can come in. We don't know you. Go away. Is it a big regret that you never went in? No, oh. because I knew that wouldn't be for me because I equated it to the Hippodrome in Leicester Square in the late 70s, which would have been exactly the same yeah. with crap music and celebrity, <laughs> you know. But I was old enough and astute enough to go and, and look for what I wanted. You know, block parties are going on in the boroughs where people are scared to go. You know, South Bronx, Prospect Park. And I'd go there with my cousin and watch quite intimidated because you didn't know what's going to happen whether someone's going to get shot or or whether the police will raid it you know but i loved that kind of culture it really excited me you know i loved the risk the danger and that's what i got from my trip to new york which latterly went on to me running illegal warehouse parties dj how to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Where did they start? Where did they start? Um, well, I don't think just one person. For you? It, uh, uh, for me, it would have started about 1983, 84, because we'd cut our teeth by getting into empty houses and setting up sound systems. And, you know, good times. You know, West London was our domain. All them big Victorian houses off of Holland Park. You know, we could get into those places easily. Um, and I had a fat phone book pre, you know, it was it was the Facebook of its day. <laughs> you know, I only needed to make, a, you know, 50 or so phone calls, do the legwork, go around, you know, all the Saturday girls, you know, here's some free tickets, bring loads of your mates. You know, networking before Facebook and all of that stuff. What were Saturday girls? Who worked in the Saturday shops, okay. in the hairdressers, okay. all the girls that worked in the markets, you know, the, all the girls that worked in Topshop, you know, Selfridges, you know, on, on go to the girls on the beauty counters, all the trendy pubs, give the barmaids, but the hairdressers was, was the place to go, yeah. Check the hairdressers. Networking made it easy. So, because once you engaged people like that and they came and enjoyed what you did, all you needed after that was word of mouth. How big were the parties? They started in the houses, were dangerously overcrowded and dangerous. Usually one or two floors, but sometimes three floors in a basement. But the parties would go from a couple of hundred people to uh, two or three thousand people. Were you making a bit of money then? No, <laughs> we never made money out of that. We liked people to think we did, but we were in it, you know, my partner then was Judge Jules from Family Function, Dan Benedict from Family Function, and Mark Rayner from Family Function. Me and Jules became very tight, and Mark Rayner became very tight with Jazzy. So we used to, between the two of us, put on parties, find venues, you know, and we do a family function, shake and finger pop. 
but our crowds were always cooler. We never ever got busted. Um, we were properly organised because when I first met Jules, I remember going to his flat in Kentish Town. You know, we'd, we'd met and we were speaking and I was really impressed with him. Fantastic knowledge. You know, he was, uh, um, I think, first or second year student at LSE. He's a super smart guy. Yeah. And I knew this kid, very smart. But if we're going to do parties together, he needs to know black street smart as well. So, because on their own, they would never get busted. But if black people were in any way involved or seen to be involved, it was a reason to raid for drugs. It was a reason for them to crash the, the parties. And in some cases, in some instances, which were recorded, they'd steal all the drink and they'd steal all the money, all the door money. And I had to make Jules aware of that. Um, and basically school him into, you know, almost sort of like wrote him a manifesto <laughs> into how you deal with with the police when they come. Don't deal with the with the copper, you know. Deal with the flat cap with the most stripes. You're white, he's white, he's probably middle class, you're middle class. You probably both got the same accents. So we've got much more chance of getting away with it than if I put myself up front. How long did you get away with it for? Oh, four years. Till we, till we decided to stop. When did you start making money out of it then? When did I start making money? <laughs> when I started to put on smaller parties by myself, you know, Shaken Finger Pop, good times. Shaken Finger Pop then was my alter ego. Um because good times was one thing but was, was the physical sound system yes and shake and finger pop was the same sound system and unknown djs and basically what guided the guiding principle there was shake and finger pop was any sort of music can go here it's not the traditional soul boy mafia thing where dj a playing jazz funk we had none of that you know it was quite um, counterculture it was counterculture it was quite punky you know we just used to put on our flyers party here's the postcode so it excluded nobody so by default we were multicultural because in my early parties I had punks mixing with Sloanies mixing with down and outs with drug dealers with Oxford and Cambridge people had parliamentary sons and daughters there. I won't name them, but they were there. We had all manner of people, proper mixture of people, wild abandon. Wasn't so drug-induced, not like the rave events which came after. We were the precursor to that. What our generation of sort of rear groove warehouse DJs did was write the book. We laid the template, and because a lot of the rave promoters who followed us used to be students or dancers in my gigs. The one thing that they did very cleverly, but they learned to monetize it. Yeah. We didn't, I had no wish to monetize it. Well, how were you living? Um, hustling, selling records. Yeah, uh, selling records um, and had got into sort of club promoting. Did you invent Rare Groove? Yeah, that's, I coined that phrase. Yeah, because when we started up Kiss in the, fall of 2005 Gordon Mack and Tosca Jackson and who else was there and George Power Gordon rang me one day Norman we'd love you to do a show on our, our new pirate station and I said I don't want to do any of that not not, not interested uh, and then his mate Tosca was very persistent Tosca came around my house and thought and persuaded me that I should get involved in it so then I realized the potential of it you know you can advertise your gigs or your parties and stuff on there so yeah kiss in those days as a pirate was was very very important and yeah see it just I, I think one thing I can say for myself is I'm consistent <laughs> 
my parties were consistently good. Yeah, all DJs are off days or off nights, but I never claimed to be a great remixer or a great mixer. I've got no deck skills, nothing like that. But what I had was the knowledge. And and yeah. realised that quite a lot of those people around me didn't. We've come this far in the conversation without mentioning the, the glaringly obvious, obviously. Um, Which is what? Well, Carnival. Oh, Carnival, yes. Oh. Well, yeah, we gate-crashed Carnival. For how long? 1980. Uh, and, and carried on gate-crashing for, what, 30 years? Well, no, because by then um, we'd become bona fide members of the sure. association and an accepted part of Carnival's entertainment um, but for the first two years, um, 1980, 81, no, we, we just, it was Wild West there. It was a place where angels feared to tread. Very few of my white mates would come to Carnival. You have to remember this is post the 76. Well, the media calls it riot, but I prefer to call it uprising, rebellion against, you know, a fascist dictatorship who thought they could do what they want with black youth then, you know. I'm a young, teenage soldier. Lots of my mates were victims of unbridled police brutality then. And there comes a point, as history's shown, with any group of people who are continually, you know, oppressed, whether they be white, black, Jewish, Catholic... <laughs> Uh, oppressed people have a breaking point and then they stand up and be counted that summer of 1976 we stood up and went no more and that forced change it forced the government to rethink the racism was still there but what carnival did that year was let them know we're no longer tolerating it you know we will we'll challenge it because, you know, as the great Don Letts rightly pointed out, and I remember it as well, there was a tune, a soundtrack, Police and Thieves, stood like a, you know, was like a militant clarion call when all other sounds got shut down and, and got smashed up in the ensuing, you know, stampede and riot. <laughs> Somebody was playing <laughs> Police and Thieves almost urging us to stand firm. You know, I was an angry young man then, angry young teenager then, and just thought, well, now we're on equal terms, equal ground here. You know, you can't just pull up in your unmarked car and pull us and drape us up against a shop window going, you look like, <laughs> or, or somebody fitting your description. What description? You don't know us. You don't. But... I digress a little, but fast forwarding, you know, four years to, to Carnival, we were still suffering the negativity, that, ha that hangover of, of that year. It was still Carnival trying to, you know, rebuild itself and reinvent itself. And I thought, well, I want to be part of the future of Carnival, you know, to help change the view of it. And I was very conscious of, of doing that. You know, if I can influence change for the good, yeah, then I'm gonna, I was on a mission to do that for four or five years because we still had the steamer gangs running past all the sound systems, you know, robbing people. You know, we were the first sound system at Carnival. I had one year, after the first year when the steamer gangs went through, because Carnival had no, no limit then, no closure. You, it began on Friday unofficially and it unofficially ended on a Tuesday morning. So music would go 24-7, round the clock. What was your first year doing it? 1980. Okay, so, mm. and you did it up until? Um, 89 at our old spot when we were in the belly of the beast on Cambridge Gardens and I realised I don't want to be doing this. Not here anymore because this time I'm just beginning to establish my credentials in clubs had a bit of a following, but nobody would come to Carnival. So that year, um, because of you know the trouble in the intervening years, it was decided to expand Carnival. And I thought, yes. And I was one of the 
the first to opt to move because I wanted out anyway. Not out of carnival. I just wanted to be away from where, where we were. And it was the first year it got properly regulated. We had, they created this association. I'm trying to remember what it's called now, but we were founder members of that. British Association of Sound Systems Base. That's the acronym. Good acronym. Yeah. Kind of, it was officially unofficial, but it, it meant that we could help influence and make decisions on the future of the sound. Because from the old guard in the sound, in, in Carnival, the sound systems were always perceived as the bastard child, if I can say that. We were never officially embraced into the four or five disciplines. I can't remember them all now. One's steel pan, one's mass. And sound systems was like, you know, the half-brother that turned up and was dis distressing things. <laughs> The plus side of the sound systems was that it gave us a platform, a creative platform to express ourselves, which that was never happening in radio. Certainly wasn't happening in the clubs because they never booked black DJs. So that culture soon changed, I'm happy to say. But yeah, we moved in the summer of 91 to our then current location on the junction of Southern Row and West Row. Ideally, in my mind, I wanted to do the car park at Sainsbury's at the top of the road. So I thought, well, it's a little bit off the beaten track. We'll get a good crowd there. And I really desperately ran to the carnival office, which was across the road from there, and spoke to the, the, the lady there. Her name escapes me as well. But she was a lawyer, and she was in charge of the allocation and stuff like that. And I ran in the office. For, uh, we want to do across the road. We're good times, aren't we? That's already gone. <sighs> you only announced it a few hours ago. Yeah, it's gone to Mastermind. So Herbie Mastermind. Didn't mind Herbie Mastermind because <laughs> they were mates of mine. I knew them. But I was absolutely gutted. And I'm thinking, <laughs> got there first. So I came out of the office, started to walk down Ladbroke Grove. And I don't know if you know the halfpenny steps that yeah, lead into us. Yeah, I, I lived um, yeah. at the end of Westbourne Grove. Yeah, so I walked down the steps thinking, oh, we've blown it. And I stood there with, with I think it was, yeah, it was Rudy and, and my brother. And I had a light bulb moment. It was a proper Bart Simpson. Bing! This is where we're going to play. Here, right at the, the bottom of the stairs. No one can find us here. And I remember all the rest of the guys were, oh, Norman, you've lost your mind. No one will find us here. The majority of the group wanted to go closer, still to the epicenter of it. That was the only spaces we were offered, near to where guys, near Power Square. I went, absolutely no way. And if you insist and you want to go there, then you take all the kit... You go there was great tribulation. I'm out. I'll wow. build my own and I'm going north. It's like leaving London to go and live in Newcastle. They opened up at the north of the borough, you know, the north of Notting Hill, because before that, after Cambridge Gardens, that, that's where it ended. But there was so much people there. And I thought, yeah, this is new, fresh start. We go here. So in the summer of 91, we went there, I remember, for about six months. I was flying on the radio, telling me, we've moved, we're not going to be at Cambridge Gardens anymore, we've, we've moved up to West Row. And I remember telling my old man, who was beginning to question it, because we only had a couple of hundred people there, I said, Dad, Joe, trust me, within three years you will not be able to move on this corner. Now I said, no, within five years you won't be able to move on this corner. And within three, it was already roadblocked. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> Will you ever do it again? No, no. Carnival, for me, was very much of its time. I did it for 30, 32 years. And our Carnival legacy remains intact. We never had a problem there. I wanted to move because I felt like I was in a straitjacket there because we were so successful there but it was finite. We couldn't take any more people there if we wanted to. And more and more people 
were beginning to come there or trying to get to it because I was summoned down to um, Kensington and Chelsea Town Town Hall with the outdoor events people um, who I had a very good relationship with my section police section commander who I had a very good relationship with him and he was a black guy actually and he said Norman listen we need to show you this we we know you're sensible we need to show you this so with I think it was before drones came out from the police helicopter showed the, the migration of people moving around Carnival and as you got within 500 yards of us it became dense everyone's moving towards good times so self-explanatory really I just smiled and he just laughed <laughs> I said Norman you know we don't want to regulate you because we don't want to control you and I said too right it's not your carnival but it was incumbent on me as the head of the sound and running the, the thing I had to come to terms with it and then one of the housing officers who was there on the committee tipped me off that they were going to knock the houses down and rebuild it anyway so I had a stay of execution for only two years so I knew I, I was going to go but made up my mind we're going to go on my terms not through police objections or council regulations because they're all anti-carnival anyway I'll announce when we go true to my word we did our last carnival in 2013 and I remember wearing glasses like this floods of tears coming down my eyes as I was, had to lie to everybody and go see you next year I was everyone's going mad knowing there was going to be no next year because if I'd have said this is our last one a riot could have happened <laughs> yeah so it's crowd management or emotional crowd management but yeah the good times continue yeah of course it continues I think we've found a new home um at Alexandria Palace. We did a test run there at Ali Pali about three or four years ago, free, free one, on the Bank Holiday weekend, but it turned out for us to be the hottest day of the year. Over 7,000 people rocked up, um, which is fantastic, but I still wasn't happy with doing it where we did it. So after COVID, Ali Pali got in touch with us again. I said, I'd like to do the terrace side, you know, overlooking London great it was a marriage made in heaven 1800 tickets sold out in less than a week and yeah forward now where that's going to be our, our home Touchwood. Norman it's time for the first of your five picks from right. 45 in this record box here okay right. all the questions are on 45 sleeves so yeah. I'll dip into the box you yeah. say when and I'll pull each question out okay okay so for your first one all right my first one now, how does being a DJ make you feel? I'm a feel-good DJ. I'm an emotional DJ, and it does make me feel good. But it's not about me, the DJ, feeling good. It's about the music I'm playing and the reaction it's making people have, the positive reaction. Nothing gives me more pleasure I'm watching people smile, kiss, hug, hands in the air, or even those who who are not up for that, you know, nodding side to side, terrible dad dancing, no matter what. It's the enjoyment of it that gives me the buzz. You've done all your life. Yeah, that, that's what I, I do. You know, no one's going to give me a proper day job now. <laughs> Back to the box for your second question. Say when. When. What's the secret to being a great DJ? The secret, or one of, there are many secrets, there's not one, one single secret, but one adage I've always worked to is make friends with your audience in the shortest possible time. Even if it means playing what blokes call a cheesy record. Put on something that the majority of people will know and react to in a positive way. What always works? Uh, well, you know, in my case, one doesn't always know what works. I'm just as famous for, for mucking it up as well. But in this day and age, we've, we've got this culture where DJs seamlessly follow each other. So then it becomes 
a, you know, a monotonous continuum. There is that. And the other side of it is if you come from my school, which is selector, you can change moods with different genres if your crowds trust you, which takes me back to make friends with your crowd first, and then they'll allow you to take them on a journey. Good advice. Mm. Back into the box, question three coming up. Mm. When? Norman, what's been the best time in your life so far? Oh, I've been blessed. I've had so many best times. My best time is possibly my next time. Oh, oh! I thought you'd answered some questions well so far, but you just killed it. <laughs> Back into the box. I'm just going to leave that and park that right there. Back into the box for a fourth question. Say when. When. Uh, I think I know the answer to this already, but let's see what you say. How much planning goes into your sets? I don't plan. No. I, I'm an emotional DJ. Um, I tried to do it that way once, but it just doesn't work for me. I don't knock the DJs, you know, who, who may be a little bit on the spectrum. They need it certain orders. Da, 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 da. I can't do it that way. I never partied that way. I never danced that way. You know, one minute I might be doing some jazz dancing, next minute I'm doing some disco diva dancing. Uh, I'm reactionary DJ. However the crowd reacts, I'll give them more of what they like. Do you still play a vinyl? At home I play off a vinyl, but not professionally. I haven't done for probably 20 years. I was slow on the digital thing. I'm the I'm slow on, on the uptake of all technologies. But after humping record boxes for around for 50 years, I'm never going to do that again. Digital's easy. At home, when I do my radio show, that's mostly vinyl because I do my Soho radio show from my music room at home in the bowels of my music vinyl collection. So they stay there. You know, I'm asked that question quite a lot, especially in the beginning when it became hip again to dig out and play vinyl so it's if you're going to analyse it it's square peg round hole you're playing analogue records through digital equipment it's not a perfect fit it's not a marriage which is why digital always strives to try and recreate the analogue not the other way round you know as I say I'm a Wily old head, I said, you know, as much as they try and convince us that they're reinventing the wheel, I know the wheel will always be round. <laughs> so I don't have to get on that. So What do you play out with then? I play out with with, with sticks. Yeah. Cause you it, don't play off a laptop? No, never. Never took... I avoided... Studiously avoided the laptop. <laughs> studiously? I, yeah, because... Yeah, I used to have these discussions with my sons when they started DJing through, through the laptops. You know, laptop, if you read Apple's thing and any laptop, it's designed to be at home, ambient temperature to get the best of it, it working. In the early days, I used to watch DJs as their programs crashed. Da, da, da. The room's full of smoke. The room is overheating because people's, you know, sweat in the heat. So the, the machine isn't going to function properly. They've modified it now, but in the beginning, it just it wasn't going to work. And I said, I'll never go there. Because what I, what I should say this to my, my sons, Mark and Russell, because Russell's now a sound engineer, but I go to him, Russell, I don't want you to tell me how it works. Just tell me what you do when it doesn't work or it fails. All technology is fallible. So just let me know what to do when it doesn't work. I can't place 100% confidence on that. With a record vinyl, of course you can. If the record skips, just lift the needle up, put it back. I was adept at just putting the the needle right back at the spot where it was jumping or it skipped. I've been there when yeah, that's happened with you. turned it over, played a piece of it. Yeah. But, so how many songs have you got on your sticks? Um, not that many. My sons keep trying to persuade me, and I know that technology is out there and trusted by DJs now. I'm going to get it in one small box and load it up. And But my sticks are like records. I recognise what genres are on, on yeah. what tracks are on what sticks. 
So people go, why have you got so many? Because, well, it's the same way I said, so many records. I reckon they're color-coded in my head or by feel, or, you know, tactile touch. I just know which is what. I instinctively know what's on where. Yeah, like you'd go through a record box. Yeah. yeah. One more question from the box, Norman. Say mm. when. When. It's a great concept. As you pull them out. What do you wish you'd never done? What do I just... That's great. I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. I would never tour, go on a tour of America again. Yeah, I, I learned that the hard way, that way. And when my US agent got me a, a, these dates touring around America, I liked it with a small L, but consciously made up my mind, never, never doing that again. Because um, it made me, A, it made me realize how big America is. And, and I was certainly reminded of the fact that on one occasion that I was black and my then manager and the journalist that came out with me witnessed that firsthand in Denver, Denver airport. Yeah, that was, uh, I'll never go back there. I do have one last question for you. Yeah. It's the end of the world mm. and you, Norman Jay, have got to play the last three records on earth. What would oh. they be? The last three records. It would be The Sound of Blackness, The Pressure, Part Two. Slipping into Darkness, Ramsey Lewis. And it would be a Young Disciples track, As We Come To Be. So I love that album to death. I still play nearly all the tracks off of it. Norman Jay, hmm. this has been amazing. Thank you yeah, so much. It's been amazing. Norman. You guys have been great. Prompting me in places like this. <laughs> well, uh, that's good, though. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, because I can say that freely because I'm old enough to say that now, but quite a few journalists down the time, lazy journalists, done no homework. And when I detect from them that they haven't done any homework, then I'm just as negative. I'm a monosyllabic answer, yes, no. I'm not going to embellish or endorse anything, I'm not going to say anything, but you guys have been great. Well, I can't thank you enough, yeah. Norman. And that was How to DJ. Rewind Selector. How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.